Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we're going to be talking about drafting white-black in Crimson Vow. As always, notes are available at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes if you want to follow along while I'm going over this. And let's get right into it. So overall, white-black has a 55.2% win rate, which is fine but unexceptional. Four pairs are worse, five pairs are better. It's a, it's a playable archetype, nothing special. Fundamentally, this color pair has really good removal, and that's its shtick. It's not great at closing games, and it can struggle a bit with card advantage, but it's easy to find a lot of ways to kill things. So, first of all, that means that it's good at prolonging a game, which, as I always discuss, anytime you're thinking about drafting a control deck in Limited, uh, means that it's something to think about moving into if you have game-winning bombs. So it's a relatively reasonable archetype to move into if you start the draft with something like a Toxrill or a Bloodfeast Demon or whatever the 6-6 Demon make copies of itself is called. It's a little bit more risky to move into if you don't have game-winning bombs that you're drawing to because you're going to have to just grind your opponent out uh, because your creatures are not very aggressively statted, your curve's not very aggressive, your cards are generally geared more toward prolonging a game than ending a game. It's very, very, very difficult to draft a truly aggressive white-black deck unless you just get absolutely traveling minister flooded. For the most part, you are going to be grinding in some capacity and that means you're going to be more on the controlling side, which means that you're going to be more on the bombs are important side. Um, and when I say bombs are important, I mean to the game overall, not just your deck. Your opponent's bombs are also going to be higher impact because they're going to have more time to draw and cast them. Good news is you should have access to more removal so ideally, you'll be able to kill most of your opponent's bombs, though not all bombs in this format are vulnerable to all removal spells. So it can be a little bit risky. That said, the color pair is reasonably well positioned to grind if you know what you're looking for. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you're looking for. The big thing that you are probably underrating in white-black, if you are anywhere near an average drafter, is pointed discussion. Pointed discussion is the third highest performing common in white-black behind Diagraph Scavenger and Traveling Minister outperforming Bleed Dry. This makes sense because, as I mentioned, White-black is good at killing things and pretty bad at getting card advantage. Also, incidentally, you're very good at protecting yourself and gaining life. So the life lost by pointed discussion doesn't matter very much, and the cards drawn do matter a lot. Also, the blood is very valuable because you are probably not great at having mana sinks or things to do with the extra lands that you will ultimately draw over the course of the very long game where you're failing to kill your opponent. This is the archetype, in my opinion, where blood is the most valuable. 
And that opinion is supported by the stats on a large number of cards that you can play in this deck that generate blood. In addition to Pointed Discussion having phenomenal stats here, Grizzly Ritual, Blood Fountain, and Ceremonial Knife all have better win rates here than they do in any other color combination. None of them are particularly great cards, but you really want to focus on having access to some amount of blood in your white-black decks because um, you can't win games where you flood when your cards are a bunch of one-for-ones and your opponents won't be flooding because they're playing color combinations that have access to blood or card draw. Um, and if you just have a bunch of one-for-ones and you don't have blood or card draw, you're going to lose games. So you need a uh, pointed discussion ideally or uh, these other commons that make blood or uh, the top performing uncommons in this archetype Felstinger followed by Markov Purifier are both cards that help solve the card advantage problem. Um, it's pretty noteworthy that Felstinger and Markov Purifier are the top performing uncommons because they are not necessarily objectively more powerful cards like in a vacuum or in other archetypes or in general limited or whatever than cards like Valorous Dance, Angela Quartermaster, and Parasitic Grasp, but they highlight the fact that white-black is really looking for card advantage as its missing ingredient um, to succeed. Of those cards, I want to spend a bit of time talking about Ceremonial Knife specifically. There is no card that is more played and less winning uh, in this format than Ceremonial Knife. It is broadly overplayed, and given that it wins less than half of its games on 17 lands where users generally win more than half of their games, it is clear that it's played more than it should be. Most of the time that people in general are playing Ceremonial Knife, they shouldn't be. Uh, I suppose that's not proven by the stats. All we know is that some portion more, that they're playing it some amount more than they should be, but I would guess that it is correct to play it under half of the time that it's played. I had a discussion on my stream yesterday about when you want to play Ceremonial Knife that I think is worth touching on briefly here. Uh, Ceremonial Knife, like any equipment that grants power, is best on creatures with keywords like flying and lifelink. It's also best in decks that have low curves and low numbers of mana sinks and creatures that are generally small. All of these things describe white in limited in a vast majority of formats. Uh, so Ceremonial Knife and most other equipment will perform best in white decks. Ceremonial Knife performs better in white-black than other white combinations in this format because of the nature of blood tokens and the fact that they help with grinding and black lends itself well to doing that. So the blood tokens help you convert lands into removal spells or creatures to keep making more blood by equipping the knife to them. White-black is also very bad at closing games, as I mentioned. Its creatures just don't have a lot of power. So Ceremonial Knife can be a meaningful boost to help you uh, break through. And then, you know, given that you have a decent amount of like flying and lifelink and death touch and stuff like that, 
those creatures use the knife better than other creatures. Also, I've had some success with the combination of ceremonial knife and persistent specimen as a way to make the persistent specimen kind of matter and generate a an endless stream of blood. Not that you accumulate it very quickly or cheaply, but it does allow you to keep digging over time. Grizzly Ritual is kind of my go-to if I don't find pointed discussions for solving the flooding out problem because it's pretty available, a pretty desirable effect for this deck, and the fact that it gives two blood when you hit six mana, that's when you really don't want more lands, and then those the two blood helps you avoid ever needing to play your seventh land. It makes it easy to convert that into more action. Griff Rider and Parish Blade Trainee are two really bad, really overrated cards. Both cards are both drafted more highly and played more frequently than pointed discussion, despite the fact they win over 5% less. This is to comment both on how underrated pointed discussion is and how overrated these training creatures are. White black isn't good at attacking and you should not use these like weak training creatures to try to make up for that. You should just like lean into it and not play aggro cards. These cards should both roughly never appear in your white and black decks. Nebelgast Beguiler is probably better than you think. That is not to say that it's good, but it has a win rate that is a little over 55%, just to say better than Ceremonial Knife, about as good as Blood Fountain, just barely worse than Heron Blast Geist. And it's a card that I've almost never seen played and would almost never play myself. Just notice that it has better stats than you'd expect, which again, makes some amount of sense because you're playing long games. It's somewhat high impact and you're just looking for like cards that matter are going to perform better than cards that don't matter. Playing white-black, I guess, is kind of similar to playing sealed, just in general, where in sealed, decks tend to have more removal and the games are less about synergy and more just about like answering your opponent's threats and not playing cards that are low impact. And white-black, the nature of the cards just leads itself to playing that kind of game. And Beguiler is less embarrassing in that context. Wedding Invitation, similar to what we saw in... Red-black is among the uh, most underplayed commons. Difficult to compare to point of discussion. It's less played and less winning. Probably less underplayed, but still underplayed. You should generally just take wedding invitations and put them in your deck over bad cards. I mentioned that Markov Purifier is the second best performing uncommon, which honestly is better than I expected it to. I underrated that card, so I suspect other people probably did also. It is actually kind of a valid reason to get into white-black since it does perform so well in the archetype. Obviously, you want to make sure that you have consistent sources of gaining life. You shouldn't count on attacking with your 2-3 lifelink creature, but if you have traveling ministers, ideally Heron of Hope, maybe even Gluttonous Guest if you have uh, some other sources of blood, um, you don't need to trigger it very many times for it to make a big impact on the outcome with a white-black deck, given everything I've said about how it's positioned. Flyers are pretty important. If you're going to win the game with small creatures, it's probably easiest to do it if those small creatures have evasion. Also, they help you not just get 
beaten up by your opponent's flyers. Heron Blast Geist is more acceptable in this deck than other places, but you're mostly looking for Courier Bat and Heron of Hope as your like go-to flyers that are kind of an essential part of your plan to win the game among commons. In the past, I've gotten questions about how does this deck perform at common. I would say that this deck has some good tools and some good synergies to do cute and or slightly strong things at common, but its overall game plan is too vulnerable to higher rarity cards for me to want to for me to think that I'm going to do well with a white-black deck that's relying on commons. It's just in too much of a controlling space where the games that you play are going to be too long and you're going to lose to your opponent's uncommons and rares if you're trying to compete exclusively with commons, such that I do think that this deck is relatively reliant on having at least a few like premium uncommons and rares to allow it to compete um, with other decks that have good cards or just other good decks. That said, I think each like legitimate bomb in your deck goes a very long way. Since you are planning to play long games and prioritize blood, you're more likely to see good rares that you find. And if they are creatures and they get killed, you are also reasonably likely to be able to get them back with courier bats or blood phones or something. So a little bit goes a long way, but you want to have some of those game winning bomb type cards if you're going to be white black. I think that mostly covers it. This is a really straightforward archetype because I really don't think there are multiple ways to approach it. There are different ways to accomplish I don't want to die. There are different removal spells, but fundamentally you're just never going to be a real aggro deck, again, barring an enormous number of traveling ministers. And so it's just about like, how do you grind? And so, I mean, I suppose... There are a couple cards I haven't touched on, like Blood Crazed Socialite is a reasonable threat here. It's going to be among your biggest creatures, and the blood is very valuable. That just follows from blood is good, therefore cards that make blood are good. Kindly Ancestor, obviously, just like on plan, helps you not need to use your removal spell spells on most two drops, and just like buys time to do whatever it is you're trying to do. This is one of those archetypes where you really don't want to prioritize very many two drops. Like Drug Skull Infantry is both the best two drop two mana creature at common and has a really bad win rate. Like it's fine to play a few two drops to make sure you don't fall behind, but I think it's kind of better not to because you're not that worried about falling behind. Your deck is so good at not dying that you'd rather just not do anything on turn two. Let them hit you for, like, let them get a two drop down and then play Kindly Ancestors and Gluttonous Guests to stabilize, ignore their two drops, and use your removal spells to handle their bigger creatures. And just, like, not, don't pay a lot of attention to the possibility that you're just going to get, like, tempoed out by a two drop if you don't play your own two drop. So, like, try to try to minimize your Drog Skull Infantry and Ragged Recluses. You want your two mana plays to be like Wedding Invitations and Fierce Retributions. Also, while you have a lot of good removal, so you shouldn't need to use the vampire in aura, the plus two, plus two for vampires, minus two, minus two for non-vampires, gift of fangs. Uh, you should be able to do better than that. You're looking for retributions, imprisonments, bleed drives, grizzly rituals, 
and then uncommons like Valorous Stance, Parasitic Grasp, and Hero's Downfall, and Circle of Confinement. Like, that's a lot of cards. You shouldn't need to play stuff like Gift of Fangs and Piercing Light. And again, you're good enough at not getting run over that you don't need to prioritize that really cheap removal. That'll cover the lecture. Let's turn it over to Twitch chat for any questions they have about White Black while I'm waiting for those questions. And again, obviously, anyone watching on Twitch, if you have any questions, please let me know if you haven't. And I want to thank Gregorado for your support on Patreon. Anyone else um, who is not already a patron is encouraged to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to see if things that we offer are enticing enough to convince you to support the program. So getting on to questions. Given that white black is a grindy archetype, would I recommend splashing? Would two pips be too much? Two pips is almost always too much to splash in roughly any archetype, unless you have a lot of cards that individually provide two pips of mana. So I'm going to go with a reasonably hard yes, two pips would be too much. For the most part, I don't recommend splashing it in this format if you can avoid it. If you have some Evolving Wilds, you could get away with it, especially if you're good at making blood. I would say that you do not want to splash commons collectively. I know I saw that a braid has pretty bad stats as a splash, which isn't surprising because you should have enough removal without splashing. If you were going to splash, interestingly, the best performing uncommon in white black is Brambleworm. So you should be looking to splash cards that offer something that you can't get in white and black rather than splashing, you know, good cards that you can accomplish with other means. Brambleworm is uh, successful enough that I would, you know, I, I can't argue against its application there, but there were, there were no commons that were comparably impressive. So uh, just be careful about it. There was one other common that, one other uncommon that was a reasonable splash. And that is, <laughs> that's actually a weird one. Uh, Blood Tithe Harvester, which just has great stats everywhere. It's not the kind of card I would generally look to splash because it's a two drop. I mean, all the stuff it's doing is stuff that it makes, you know, it, it's just a great card and it's in line, especially if you have a more uh, recursion focused version of white black the sample sizes on splashing both of these are extremely small i would take both with a large grain of salt but uh, th those cards are potentially splashable but in general i would you know look to minimize the amount that i'm splashing in the archetype overall next question would i rather have three markov purifiers or one bomb, assuming the other archetype was otherwise open. It depends on the bomb. Uh, there's a big difference between something like a Toxril that is, you know, like a 69% bomb or like a Henrik Domnathy that's like a 67.6%, you know, game and hand win rate bomb versus something like a Concealing Curtains that's like a 61.7% game and hand win rate bomb. Like, Curtains is good enough that I'm excited about it. It's you know, in the top 15 to 20 cards, but it's not, you know, the, the absolute top, top tier. I guess I would likely rather have like a Toxrail or a Henrika 
but I would, you know, draw the line at something like, I don't know which is better between say like Edgar and three um, purifiers. Not that that's ever a pick you're going to be making. <laughs> Next question. You don't sound very excited about white black. Should we steer away from it? Well, it depends on, in general, I think that the color pairs are relatively balanced and it is more important to be in, I guess the first priority is to be in the color of any bombs you see. And the second priority is to be in whatever colors open. However, you're more likely to see bombs if you're in an open color. So those two kind of go hand in hand. After that, you want to be in archetypes that are fundamentally strong. So that is to say you shouldn't actively avoid it, but you also shouldn't be looking to move into it. So if you know that you're white, you would rather draft black than green. If you know that you're black, you would rather, rather, rather draft white than green or blue, according to the stats which means that basically like if you have a really good one card of one color and you're trying to figure out what your other color should be, it, like the other half of white black is never the best place you'd want to end up because every red deck is more successful than every non-red deck. So like if I start with a black bomb, I would rather end up black red than black white, but I could do worse if red's not open. So it's fine. <laughs> the, the answer is it's fine, but it's fine given that you have powerful cards that allow you to compete in the late game. If you are going into it without having those, it's risky. I think that's my full answer to that question. Can I talk a bit more about curve considerations in white-black? I mentioned that two drops aren't terribly good in this archetype. What's typical curve like? It's a good question. I think curves are extremely important in limited and magic in general. That said, I think that the, your curve is less important in white-black than probably any other archetype. Definitely any other archetype. Because it's really hard for your opponent to punish you if they come out faster than you do because you have good removal, good life gain, good blockers. You're very good at making the game go long and letting it come down to attrition. I, I should have used that word earlier. This archetype more or less has to play an attrition-based game. Attrition is the opposite end of the spectrum from tempo. Curves are important for tempo, given that you are as far from generally caring about tempo as possible, your curve is as unimportant as it can get. That said, all of these concepts always matter in a game of magic. Some of your opponents are going to care about tempo and if what they're doing is more is better at dictating the like axis of interaction of a game than what you're doing, you will sometimes be forced to play a tempo game. What does your curve look like? It's hard to answer when I'm saying it doesn't really matter. The quality of a card already takes its casting cost into account. So basically you want to just take the best cards you can and modify your pick order as little as possible based on your curve. Um, and by as little as possible, I mean less than you would in other archetypes, but still a little bit. But I guess it is to say that this is 
kind of the archetype where you will be least punished for drafting more based on a static pick order than for dynamically updating your priorities as a function of your curve and trying to fill in holes that develop. So you should only modify your pick uh, based on the casting costs of the card you're looking at relative to the casting costs of cards you have when your curve is already dramatically bad or the gap in quality of the two cards is very small. Are there rares that change the way you play this? Not big picture that I can think of. Uh, Markov was listed in his, as an example. I assume that's Edgar Markov. So I don't, I don't know what card that's asking about. Um, probably Edgar, even if Markov is not in his name. Anyway, no. Everything in this deck is... No. <laughs> it, it, white Black is so... So many of the cards point to doing a thing that a single card in my deck isn't going to change that. So, no, a, a rare won't fundamentally change my strategy. I guess the closest is Wedding Announcement. That card is just so powerful that, you know, I, I might be a little bit more likely to put two drops in my deck or whatever, but um, it just doesn't matter. Uh, it, like... Wedding announcement just does so much for you that it's good. Like it's just a legitimate bomb. If you're if the thing that you're doing is making the game go longer and playing creatures that have relatively small numbers, the plus one plus one that you're getting from wedding announcement uh, is going to matter a lot in the long term because your guys have abilities and so they're scaling really well with the plus one plus one. Um, so you don't really need to go out of your way to take advantage of it. So. No. Uh, small shifts, not, not big shifts. Would I characterize the life gain sub-theme as a trap, a thing that happens to give value, or an important engine of successful white-black decks? I would say that it is closest to an important engine of successful white-black decks, given that gaining life is just fundamentally very on plan for uh, what you're doing, where you would like to be able to pay life with pointed discussion, not worry a lot about falling behind, ignore your opponent's small creatures for a while while you find a creature that can invalidate them rather than needing to use a removal spell on them. So like life gain is just fundamentally good for what you're trying to do. And then also, given how successful and available Markov Purifier is, it's reasonable for it to dictate a lot about what your deck is doing. So like because white black isn't a particularly highly drafted deck and like Markov Purifier, you it's just a card that you're going to have. Like if you're the white black player, you're going to get the Markov Purifiers. Other people aren't going to like splash them or move in for them. You're just, you get to have it. So if you are good at using it, that's like a large benefit because there is not a card that you have more access to that has a better win rate than it. So it's an important part of your plan and something you should be taking into account. Next question. Splashing something like Screaming Swarm would be similar to Brambleworm? Probably not because Brambleworm is so much more impactful immediately. Like it keeps you alive and it's good to recur i i would hope that you don't need a screaming swarm to win the game but i i understand how it's conceptually similar it hasn't been done enough that there are stats on it so 
I, I can't really speak definitively. I haven't done it. I could imagine it. Would I consider Vampire's Kiss and it's too blood playable here if I'm short on better two drops? No. So first of all, I'm more likely to consider it if I'm short on other blood sources than if I'm short on two drops uh, because of what I was saying about how your curve just isn't that important. But I think Vampire's Kiss going down a card to get to blood isn't worth doing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, it, no, I, I don't think Vampire's Kiss is a playable card. Do we actually know that bomby red black decks are better than bomby white black decks? I do believe that it would be possible to look into that um, if you had access to like 17 lands actual data rather than just their um, published data. Uh, I still don't know how to use that and haven't looked into it or asked about it. My guess is that white black decks are a tiny bit better at taking advantage of bombs, but like not that much better since red black also has access to really good removal and a lot of blood and just fundamentally can position itself similarly if it wants to. Next question, if white black is a straightforward archetype, does that mean one should basically pick the white black card with the highest game in hand win rate each time, barring some super weird curves? Let me think about whether I'm going to get myself in trouble if I say yes. I'm going to go with no, I'm not going to get myself in trouble. You can do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've mentioned that in general, the more typical a deck that I'm drafting is, the more I use the stats. And given that I think that there are very few ways to like even trick yourself into doing something else with white black, I would expect that a vast majority of white black decks are fundamentally going to be positioned similarly to the samples that the stats are drawn from. And given that your curve uh, doesn't impact your picks very much, I suspect that this would be the best archetype to blindly uh, draft the highest win rate card every time, no matter what. Um, I suspect that that strategy would outperform a reasonably large portion of humans drafting white black. <laughs> I, I hadn't really thought about it that precisely, but it sounds likely to me that that is true. Next question, have I had or seen successful white-black aggro builds with several ministers, flyers, scavengers, etc.? Kind of. I've had some decks with a lot of ministers that, like, the one that I had recently that I'm thinking of was a, the one deck where I played Bride's Gown and Groom's Finery, and that deck was, like, at the very least more proactive than white-black tends to be. I don't know that I would call it truly aggressive. It was basically using ministers and equipment to grind my opponent out with Doom Dissenters and Persistent Specimens, which was an appreciably different strategy than white-black would usually have. And that is an example of a deck where I was drafting white-black and by the end of the draft would deviate substantially from the default pick order for white-black or the default pick order based on game and hand win rate for white-black. So that deck was somewhat exceptional. 
and it was exceptional enough to change valuation, which I guess is kind of the important question to ask when asking if a deck is like meaningfully differentiated. But I that's still like, you know, proactive grindy rather than reactive grindy, but still I would say fundamentally in a similar space uh, strategically rather than like, oh, I'm, you know, aggressive in the way where like I'm playing a tempo game. I, I That deck was not playing a tempo game really. Next, if you had enough repeatable life gain, could bat become one of the highest priorities at some point in the draft? How much might enough be? So I will say that this points to a reasonable uh, point about the possible shortcoming of drafting by straight game and hand win rate, which is that while your curve and strategy might not very much, some of your internal synergies and missing pieces do, such that like, you know, obviously if you have a lot of pointed discussions and you're short on removal, it's not very hard to get to the point where you would want to prioritize removal over pointed discussion. Similarly, if you were drafting straight up by game and hand win rate, you might just over-prioritize pointed discussion and you would draft some of them that you could try to table instead. Also, and more importantly to this bat question, you might not properly adjust your pick order for cards that allow you to gain life and trigger off gaining life if you're just drafting based on a static pick order rather than a dynamic pick order based on what you have. Courier bat definitely moves up and down based on how easily you can trigger it. I don't know what its full range is. I would be really interested in seeing um, stats on Courier Bat as a function of number of uh, cards that gain life, or even more specifically, as a function straight up of Traveling Ministers, um, since Traveling Minister is the easiest repeated life gain uh, input. I do think that, yes, I think that Bat is fundamentally pretty important to what White Black is doing and that its power levels uh, pretty variable based on how easily you trigger it. Um, I don't know what its ceiling is. I suspect that its ceiling is pretty high. I don't know if its ceiling is like best common if you're like totally there, but it's probably not far from there. Though I, I would be hard pressed to imagine a spot where I would want to take a bat over a traveling minister personally. All right, it looks like we're all caught up. So that's going to do it for white black. Hopefully this was informative. I know it can be a little unsatisfying to have the conclusion. Oh no, you don't need to. You don't need to know anything. Just follow the stats. I've certainly been accused of leaning too heavily on the stats. Hopefully, at least the explanations to why I think stats are particularly useful and informative here matter. And then, obviously, I did walk that back a little bit uh, in terms of the significance of some of the synergies outside of your curve in this archetype. I guess to wrap up with a few key takeaways that I'd want you to remember here, most importantly, prioritize pointed discussion more highly than you have been unless you've been somehow already prioritizing it over bleed dry, at which point I guess you're good. In general, just remember that you really need access to blood in this archetype so that you don't flood out like to the point where you should prioritize cards that give you blood if you're you know most of the way through the draft and behind where you feel like you should be. You want the ability to generate more blood tokens. Like You want your deck to be able to generate some number of blood tokens. I don't know what that number is. I don't know if I should tell you 
look for the ability to make six total blood tokens, eight total blood tokens. I, I'd be making up a number at this point if I said look for this many. There likely is a number. Pay attention to what feels good if you want to work it out. And uh, focus more on your internal synergies and um, making sure that your cards work together to accomplish your goals of answering your opponent's threats, winning an attrition game, finding your threats, having a plan to kill your opponent eventually, but not necessarily quickly. Make sure that you're supporting any uh, synergies that you're playing with. So any cards that look for a certain kind of input, like gaining life, make sure that you have enough cards that provide that. Prioritize all of that like synergy and strategy type stuff over the curve type stuff. And if you do all of that, I think that you will be relatively successful uh, in your white-black drafts, which again, should probably only happen when you have a powerful white or black card that is allowing you to expect to do well in a control deck. That's it for this week. And I'll be back next week to talk about whatever it is uh, I am told to talk about. Thanks, and bye for now. Speed.